Liz, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, John? I'm great. You're a repeat participant to our uh, AML conversation, so really appreciate that. Liz Fercaro is a lawyer, legal consultant to the Antiquities Coalition, and has been kind enough over the course of the past couple of years to help us both with uh, advocacy, understanding of what's going on with uh, that organization, but also participated as has her colleagues with with us uh, conferences webinars and several podcasts so thanks again for taking some time a um, lot a lot going on in in general in the financial space that touches on financial crime whether it's uh, digital assets the, the, the whole uh, crypto world who's in charge of what but there's also a whole series of eventual regulations that I know your organization and many of us in the financial crime prevention space believe are um, sadly way behind. And that is to, to uh, have some series of requirements and obligations regarding the sale, the purchase, the advice, advice uh, about um, antiquities, sales, uh, art sales, that sort of thing. And I wanted to catch up with you on a couple of items that you folks have been involved in and have thoughts about. I was spent the, the lion's share of our conversation about something that uh, Elliot and I talked about a couple of weeks ago in one of the This Week in AML. That was the, the art market's recent um, two, 2023 report from Art Basel and UBS. I wanted to talk about that, but I, I first wanted to ask you, um, the Antiquities Coalition joined a group of uh, advocacy groups back in March and signed on to a letter to uh, Secretary of Treasury Yellen, uh, basically urging the secretary to move quickly to get a permanent director of FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. What was the thought process there? I mean, I, I certainly have my views on it, but what was the Antiquities Coalition's goal in joining those other groups like Global Financial Integrity and Transparency International and, and a number of other groups that signed on to the letter. Yeah, absolutely. So our view here is that FinCEN is vital to ending the financial crimes that happen here in this antiquities and art market space. And, you know, our concern with the crimes here is that these crimes really um, impact our shared history they also impact national security and they impact the global economy. And the continuing exemption of the art and antiquities market from the kind of standard laws and oversight, which now cover all industries of comparable size and risk, it's a documented and growing threat to all of these things, to our national security, to integrity, to our shared history. And it's a threat to the vast majority of the legitimate collectors and dealers and auction houses and museums. And you know, the, what, nearly two years that the Bureau has gone without permanent leadership um, really contradicts the gravity of FinCEN's mission and the stated national security and economic and criminal justice objectives of the administration. And this lack of a permanent director, we feel, complicates the endeavors to set a clear vision and direction. I think, yeah, I think there's no question. And obviously, they do have a lot on their plate. And I think the key that many are concerned about is the, how is the beneficial ownership registry 
going to be uh, in terms of uh, uh, the utilization of it? How is it going to work? Who's going to get access? That sort of thing. So that takes a lot of energy and time and resources. But as we both know, Congress made very clear that the antiquities area was not simply challenging, but needed guardrails. And, you, you know, we are obviously waiting those. I also wanted to ask you, I know we talked about this offline, but um, to uh, further confirm your point about the importance of this area, uh, uh, HSI or Homeland Security Investigations obviously has done a lot of work in this space. And uh, they recently posted some information from first quarter about some of the things they do. And I'll just make a quick reference here and then get your, get your take. But, you know, HSI specifically says that their mission is, is to investigate the importa- criminal importation distribution of stolen or looted properties and that they, um, the laws on the books that address customs issues give a- HSI agents that unique authority and jurisdiction to, to be leaders there. We know the FBI does quite a bit in the area of uh, art theft and counterfeiting and the misuse of art, but HSI has done an extreme amount of work in a number of investigations. And I know you folks have been partnering with them on outreach and, and content as well, but this is a, seems to me to be a pretty clear example of what you just said, that why are we waiting on these regulations when it's clear that HSI is, you know, involved in all these investigations and prosecutions, either on their own or in connection with groups like the Manhattan DA's office, that sort of thing. Right. The HSI has been doing incredible work here in this space, and it really just points to the enormity of the problem. And it's becoming a growing issue when we don't have the regulations here in the U.S. that help to close our borders to the solicit activity that exists in other market countries like the EU, like Great Britain and the UK. Um, And, you know, I think it was just in the second quarter of this year alone, they repatriated over 135 artifacts. Um, Last year, I'm looking here at one of their uh, public statements, and it said that they repatriated cultural property to more than 15 countries. Wow. And those countries include France, India, Iraq, Italy, and Mali. I mean, we're thinking kind of of the usual suspects here. You're thinking of countries like Italy that is constantly facing this threat of looting and objects being spirited out of the country because they're valued so greatly and can earn these looters a lot of money. But we're also looking at countries that you might not traditionally associate with this issue. I mean, France is not maybe on the top of everyone's mind when they think of countries that um, suffer from looting, but it can really happen to any country that has old objects or um, art objects in it of high value. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I would urge, uh, we would both urge folks to uh, both follow what HSI uh, uh, produces on a regular basis and obviously go to their website and take a look at some that is information. Let's uh, shift gears. Um, as I mentioned, we, we had a brief conversation a couple of weeks ago about this um, study, the Art Basel and UBS Art Market Report. And we focused in our brief conversation about some of the comments made by the drafters regarding these potential regulations, sort of big picture. But this is a 260-page uh, report. 
um, and there's quite a bit in there, some for me in the weeds because I'm not in this space, but they talk about the priorities. They talk about uh, outlook coming up. What are some of the things that you and the Antiquities Coalition, when you looked at the report and reviewed it, what sort of things jumped out at you? Yeah, this report is published annually uh, by Dr. Claire McAndrew. She has done incredible work in this space. Uh, she's an economist and she's been publishing a report of this fashion since 2009 um, and has been partnering with Art Basel and UBS since uh, 2017. And this is a really valuable resource for people who are interested in this space um, from the financial perspective. It, because it's been published for so many years now, it really gives us a broad look at um, how this market has grown and changed over the years. And um, it's really an invaluable resource. And I'm very grateful to her for continuing this research every year. Um, this year's report, I think, has a couple of things that are really notable. Um, one thing is the growth of the market. Um, it is valued <laughs> at $67.8 billion in 2022. That's, I mean, the scale of that is truly astonishing. And that's up 3% compared to last year's value. Um, but what's really notable here is that um, the value of the market jumped nearly 30%. It was 29% from 2020 to 2022. The recovery after COVID for the art and antiquities market is truly stunning. And the, the value here, again, we're talking billions and billions of dollars is kind of eye-watering. This is an enormous market and um, it shouldn't be brushed aside. Let me ask you um, what jumped out at me besides their comments regarding potential regulation. Um, the increase, although I guess it subsided a bit in 2022, of online sales. What, from your perspective, what are the challenges um, as, you know, as to understanding the source and all the things that the Antiquities Coalition is concerned about regarding art and antiquities. What are the different challenges for online versus in person? I mean, there's some obvious ones, but from your from your perspective, what are what are some of the things that strike you when you are looking at online purchases or sales of items versus uh, um, at, at auctions or or other other vehicles? Yeah, so I mean, the online space is really broad, right? We're talking about very legitimate spaces, you know, an auction houses, online <laughs> listings, maybe a, um, the online presence for a long established art fair. And we're also talking about, you know, person to person messaging apps, Facebook marketplace, eBay, these are all online marketplaces and all have varying degrees of risk and challenges um, associated with them. And so you know, when we're talking about a risk-based approach, we have to also keep in mind, you know, what measures are already in place um, for one online marketplace versus another. Um, but one of the broad risks here is that because the art and antiquities market is not obligated in the U.S. to the same KYC controls that any other market of comparable size is obligated to, they are not gathering you know, the due diligence information and the ultimate beneficial ownership information, um, or at least they aren't required to be, they may be doing so voluntarily, but there is no particular onus on them to do so legally. 
Um, and in some cases, it behooves them not to do this because this industry has this ongoing policy and culture of discretion, um, yeah. which again, as I've mentioned in our previous podcasts, there are legitimate and illegitimate reasons for this. And that really complicates this space. Um, but I do see this particularly as being a major risk. Um, and we're looking at this massive growth of really high value purchases and exchange and transactions. You know, I think they said the largest growth sector that they saw in 2022 was for purchases over uh, $10 million. Who are these people who are transacting at this high level? Is that information being gathered? And if it's not, how is law enforcement going to be able to pursue these criminals? If the, if the auction houses, if the dealers, if the galleries don't ultimately know who these individuals are. You know, some of the other things in there, they talked about the, the outlook and then the priorities of the respondents. And I think one of the things that struck me is despite, or in addition to digital issues or online sales or what have you, they did anticipate more uh, expansion of physical locations. What's, I mean, obviously this is an area I'm not remotely familiar with, <laughs> but, but given everything else and, you know, just coming out of a pandemic and everything, what's your, what's your take about that? I know it's not specific to our concerns about the movement of illicit funds for these things, but that, that seemed interesting to me that they highlighted that as one of the, the things they expected. I don't remember the percentages, but they did, they did believe that would be an expansion of physical locations. Yeah. You know, what is interesting to me about that is if they're expanding to locations that are outside of the U S that means that they're going to be obligated to comply with AML and TF regulations um, in those other locations. And especially if it's in the EU um, or the UK, which are massive sectors for this for this market. That's where a lot of the transactions um, and markets are. That's where the art fairs are held. So if they're going to have to comply with these regulations once they are operating overseas, then the complaint that potential regulations here in the US would be too burdensome really doesn't hold any water because they're already preparing to comply over there. Yeah. Um, the other part of this, uh, toward the end in the outlook, they talk about a, a few things that are relevant to our world, and that's transparency, uh, but also under the broad category of ethical considerations and ownership restrictions. I thought, I thought the coverage there was particularly interesting. And um, reading from the report, it said, any transaction involving the sale the purchase of an artwork requires the buyer to beware, quote unquote. But most buyers know that their contractual counterparties must be capable of conferring legal title on them. They also expect that all rights and interests in the artwork must pass to them when payment is made. But due diligence doesn't end there. Legal title alone isn't enough. Uh, you know, that all sounds great, but isn't that been part of the gap issue from your folks' perspective is that not everybody treats it like that, you know, whether it's art or antiquities or whatever the category is, that they don't all, there isn't that due diligence that's always, that's always accomplished. That's, that's why we're going to eventually have these regulations, right? Right, exactly. Um, right now, these are kind of, com the due diligence um, actions, if any, are, are self-regulated. They're coming from 
maybe an industry standard or practice, but it's not being required. And, you know, so people could do this by a transaction by transaction basis, maybe one transaction, it's easy, it's straightforward, they decide, okay, we can we can complete this within 24 hours and confirm this is legitimate. And maybe in another one, it gets a little hairy, and they don't have the resources or the employees to complete it, or they're under a time constraint. And, you know, if there's no requirement for them to complete this due diligence, where is the onus to do it if they would if they can complete the transaction sooner than later. Um, and, you know, again, I'm not in any way implying that legitimate art market actors are doing right. what I'm about this um, necessarily, right. but also when you have bad actors in this market, they can just completely fly by these due diligence standards and completely ignore the object's history. They can turn a blind eye to the fact that they're using a third party intermediary and don't know the ultimate beneficial owner of a transaction or even maybe the ultimate owner um, who is selling the object. They can turn a blind eye to a lot of these things because it's self-regulated. Um, and it, again, yeah. a legitimate market actor is not going to intentionally turn a blind eye, but they could be abused by people who are manipulating the fact that these regulations are not in place and can obscure their identity, can obscure the source of their funds. Yeah, look, you're not, and neither am I, we're not casting aspersions on entire communities. Just like 30 years ago, we weren't saying every banker didn't care where monies came from, um, and, you know, and obviously had to adapt to regulations and, and additional due diligence besides best practices. But but again, and I know Elliot and I talked about this a bit a few weeks ago, but I'm curious of your take. This this particular uh, now we're at the treasury. Now they're referenced to the Department of Treasury study, which I know we both have views on. But before that, they say, again, reading from the report, high value art has come under particular scrutiny. Enforcement agencies have treated with suspicion the fact that eye watering sums can be exchanged for objects traded in the much maligned quote, unregulated art market, unquote. And then in parentheses, it says the following, notwithstanding the fact that the art market is, of course, subject to a whole plethora of rules and regulations, though not subject to oversight by one regulatory body. What about that is right? <laughs> I mean, again, there can be very legitimate people transacting at this high value level. Um, we're not saying that every single sure. <laughs> transaction that's, you know, at these eye-watering sums is by an oligarch who's trying to enter the U.S. market and evade sanctions, right? We're not saying that. But this is a huge concern. And one thing that we mentioned in our um, Financial Crimes Task Force report from a couple years ago is that the fact that there are regulations in some markets but not others, and specifically not in the U.S., makes the U.S. the default loophole market for bad actors to abuse. Um, and that is really concerning. We want to have kind of as close to universal regulations internationally in order to close these loopholes and protect this market from these bad actors. And these regulations are meant to protect those who are in this market from being abused. And while I understand there are concerns about the burden sure. the burden on especially the smaller businesses to comply with this, 
I can only point to the fact that other markets, and especially great example is the precious metals and jewelry industry, had to come under these regulations as well. Very similar. You have a lot of mom and pop shops and small, small businesses that are not doing these million dollar transactions who also have come under regulation and the regulations are risk-based and they are appropriate to the scale of a business that's transacting. Um, and so I think the fear here is a little bit exaggerated. No, yeah, no question. And in fact, what, what everybody forgets whenever you write something like this to people that aren't engaged in um, political science issues and don't understand how uh, policy creation to regulation works, any proposal would be a a public proposal that you get to look at and comment and make um, recommendations regarding operational issues or legal issues or what have you. Um, but also virtually any reg in this space, meaning the anti-monolaurin space, will, I won't use the words carve out, but will look at sort of different tier level of institutions. So certain institutions are not going to have the same obligations as multinational institutions. It's not going to happen. Course. So that's where this becomes a little thing. I, you know, I, I, two, two more things I want to mention on this real quick, because I think it's important. Because This is the tail end of the report, you know, a couple hundred pages in. But obviously, it's written by somebody who, my, in my view, I'm not casting this, uh, my comment to you, uh, clearly left out some things. And, and here's where I think that's pretty clear. They mentioned the Treasury report back in January 2020 uh, to look at the um, the art industry because as you remember as we both know uh liz the the antiquities are, are going to be covered in, under the bank secrecy act in some form they i don't say they punted on art but they said we couldn't come up with a clear definition so let's have treasury look at so treasury did and they came back with my take is um it's clear that um art can be misused for the movement of illicit funds but at this point, with everything else we are dealing with, it's not a priority to deal with right away. This is what the report says. While the study found little evidence of money laundering or other related activities in the art market, again, my comment, not true, it suggested that certain art market professionals are more vulnerable to money laundering than others. That is true. The authority flagged in particular online marketplaces, social media platforms and encrypted messaging services. But then they say it rejected a one size fits all approach and mindful of the burden on smaller players. Again, close to accurate. Uh, I don't think it was ever going to be one size fits all, but they did say we have to understand as you just did sort of, well, you mystically we call mom and pop um, entities are not going to have the same ability to do due diligence. And that they said, um, you know, based on all that, that, that perhaps they'll do non-regulatory options. All of that's correct. But the last thing I want to mention and get your take on all this, um, late last year, the Senate was considering adding provisions to a major piece of legislation that would have included additional uh, anti-money laundering provisions. They, and they called it the, the Enablers Act. And it dealt with adding investment advisors, lawyers, accountants under the Bank Secrecy Act and they had antiquities and art dealers in there, even though we're going to get antiquities under that separate law that passed, they ended up not adding that. According to this report, they said they rejected it 
um, and because it would have expanded that to those persons. It was not a focus on auction houses, wasn't a function on antiquities. It was because the legal profession, which Liz and I are both part of, yes. lobbied hard <laughs> against that. So that's what happened. But right, what's your, right. your, 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 ta- your take on, on both the Treasury report and then just on enablers, which, again, included antiquities again, but we'll, we'll still see a regulation there. But uh, as a coalition, what, what do you take away from both of those things? Yeah, so I think the ultimate point here is that no one is saying that this market space is not at risk. Um, The study makes very clear that the art market and antiquities market is vulnerable to a range of financial crimes. And equally, the Enablers Act, including these parties, is a recognition that it's vulnerable, that there is action needed here. Um, And I think, again, we're looking at a long history here of, <clears throat> excuse, <clears throat> excuse me, of um, entities here in the U.S. that are recognizing the risk here and trying to find a way to make a risk-based and reasonable approach to regulating this market. Um, and, you know, as you said, I think that this report kind of misrepresented the conclusion that the Treasury report, um, they did not state that this market wasn't vulnerable. And um, they kind of addressed the many ways in which this can be addressed through regulatory and non-regulatory options. And the conclusion that it shouldn't necessarily be a priority for the treasury right now is not to say that it's not at risk. Right, yeah, I think that's correct. Uh, I'll get you out of here on this. Um, The coalition has done amazing work over time we're going to eventually have those regulations. So if I'm an AML compliance professional in a financial institution of any, of any kind of FinTech or traditional bank or what have you, and I want to be up to speed for the eventual requirements, not that the bank is going to have to do the reporting detection, but their clients would. And so that sometimes falls on the institution. What are good sources of information, both from your coalition and others where we can, stay on top of that for people, people like myself, who I understand a little bit about this, not like you haven't, you know, you, you have an amazing background besides your law background in this space, as does Tess Davis, your executive director. So people that aren't experts, how do we stay on top of these things? Sure. So our, the Antiquities Coalition website um, is quite active. We try to keep abreast of the issues in this space and publish blog posts on this and kind of digesting it in terms that are understandable um, for for a person who is either not in the financial crime space and or is not in the art and antiquities space. Um, like none of these concepts necessarily are very complicated, but I understand that the vocabulary is. And if you're not, not immersed in it, it can be kind of overwhelming. Um, we also are very active on LinkedIn and Twitter, if it if it survives another day, um, you can find us on there. We're still posting. Um, you know, I also want to point people to the fact that FATF published this report this year, um, which mm-hmm. you and I already had a podcast about. Um, but it has an incredible resource um, full of case studies um, that point to the risks involved in this in this market space. Um, our, you know, our financial crimes task force report, which was published a number of years ago, is still a really excellent resource. Um, 
that I would like to point people to. And I think, again, that was written with the mind that we are going to have readers who are maybe not immersed in either of these spaces. And we wanted it to be um, very clear <laughs> and legible to any reader. You know, I said I was going to um, get you out of here, but it, was, it just got me to thinking of something else you, you folks have been involved in. And I, I'm on the board of Manchester CF, and I know you guys have worked with Kim Manchester. And one of the courses that he put together with your assistance, from what I understand, is is a course on arts and antiquities uh, that Manchester CF offers to financial institutions. And I know that the way he works, he'll update as the regulations become final. And it's a global course. It's not a U.S.-based course. But I know that's another place where people that want to get up to speed and beyond could potentially go, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we vetted that material and are working with him to update it um, as and when the regulations come. Um, it's a really great resources for folks who are already in this industry and would like to a, you know, get a little bit of a deeper dive into this market. Um, I myself am not an anti-money laundering expert, um, although who knows, maybe I'll add cams to my to my resume someday. But um, it's a really great resource, and we do recommend it. And, um, you know, that's an online resource. You can take it anywhere in the world. Um, and it is written with that global global intention so that it's not um, explicitly focused on any one country. Um, so I do encourage folks who are interested to give that a look as well. Well, Liz, uh, as last time you provided some great, great insight, really appreciate it. And uh, people should, again, go to the website. As Liz mentions, um, they'll tell you there. Uh, their missions are broad, but it's the global campaign against cultural racketeering is is a key, uh, a key, a key goal. Their values are, are there. What they've done is is amazing with a pretty small group. Unfortunately, you get a lot of volunteers that help you <laughs> along yeah. the way. Uh, so appreciate that. So, Liz Vaccaro, thank you so much for your time today and your insight. Really appreciate it. And I know we'll talk again soon. Great. Thanks again, John. Pleasure to be here again. Mm -hmm.